0: To start off the hour by reminding us of humility and grace. Humility and grace. So, one of the things happening in my community every Wednesday is a food distribution, and it takes a lot of humility to get in that line um, and to acknowledge that your family would be better off if you would go ahead and accept the grace being offered. Um, by your neighbors, by the government, uh, by churches, by others in the community. Uh, So we have a community um, share shelf outside of our little grocery store right now. Um, And I think it takes a lot of humility to go to the share shelf. I think it takes a lot of humility to get in line and say, um, you know, at the food distribution on Wednesdays and say, I, um, I need this. I'm at a point of need in my life, and I need this. It takes humility to go to the local food bank. Um, it takes humility. It also takes grace because there is another side of uh, of all of that, and that that is the reality that there are those who have enough right now, more than enough, enough to share with others, and it takes grace to say, you know what? I don't just have enough. I have more than enough. In fact, I could, I could actually give not only out of my abundance and my plenty, but um, there are ways that I could, uh, you know, even give if I feel like in some ways I'm a person who is in need. So I want to encourage you today to just consider humility and grace, um, humility and grace. I'm settling in on those two words for um, consideration today. And there are places and spaces where I need to cultivate more humility. And there are places and spaces where I need to be um, giving more grace. So humility puts me in a place where I can receive grace without humility. Like even all of the grace that God is seeking to pour out, it just, it lands like, uh, okay, so the other day I was making coffee. And I have the kind of machine that has a pot and it has a one cup thing. And, you know, I'm only making one cup because I'm the only person up at four in the morning. And so um, I went through all of the steps and uh, I I turned around a couple of minutes later to get my cup of coffee. And it's literally like all over the floor. It's all over the counter. It's all over the floor. I had failed to do uh, the one thing, which is put the cup on in the place where it could receive the coffee, right? And so the coffee spilled everywhere. Grace is like that. God is constantly pouring it out. If I am not in a position to receive with a humility and an openness, then it just the grace continues to be poured out, but I don't become a receptacle of it. I don't receive it. And so humility and grace are related. Um, I want you to just consider those topics today. I want you to consider where you are in terms of um, being at a place of humility in receiving grace, but then also being a conduit of the grace that you have received into the lives of others who find themselves in greater need this time of year, and particularly this particular year. All right, Bill English is up next from com. We're going to talk about um, some of the ways we we probably need to reinvent ourselves uh, to prepare for a post-COVID economy. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Right, joining me now, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back, sir.
2: Hey, thanks. Good to be back. How are you doing today?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm, fabulous. I'm just great. You know, I've heard
2: that about you. Paul is just <laughs> saying off air how fabulous and great and wonderful you are. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> That's because he's hoping for some sort of year-end gift. I don't know. No, not really. I'm just kidding. Okay, so let's talk about... Paul is the year-end gift. He is the gift that gives. He you he's day. the he gift is, that keeps
2: on giving, isn't he? Yes. I know. Can You're I just reliable... here just a You're moment? You're like the
0: most reliable friend ever. <laughs> you, you are. Yes. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah. Um Hi. I don't know. I don't know if I have actually never mind. Continue. <laughs> 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 hey Bill, let's talk about yeah. um I mean, here's the here's the good news. Uh, with the vaccine, I mean, it's more than on the horizon. Uh, it, it It's landing in communities across the country. Um, people are going to begin being vaccinated against COVID. Um, we are going to begin to talk about a post-COVID reality. That means we're going to talk about a post-COVID economy. Some things are not going back to quote-unquote normal. Um, the economy has changed. Jobs have changed. People have moved. Companies have retooled. Let's talk a little bit about how we are going to be thinking differently about ourselves as workers in a post-COVID economy.:
2: Okay. Well, uh, there are some threats to all of this, and there's some wonderful news on the horizon. First of all, but let's 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 make the observation. It's my understanding that roughly forty million people, and I, I could be wrong about this, have already made a job transition uh, during this COVID time. Uh, There's just been a lot of people leaving certain types of jobs and going into other types of jobs. So uh, I I think that the ability for people to make transitions in jobs is already there. The government provides a truckload of support for people who are wanting to make job transitions and some companies are doing quite a bit in terms of job retraining, trying to get people ready really for for the next 10 to uh, 15 years. And so in this post-COVID economy, I think what we're going to find is that a number of people who are in either lower-wage jobs or certain kinds of service industries will be forced into other types of employment. And, But, you know, a part of me, Carmen, part of me kind of thinks that they'll kind of head back to those jobs uh, over the next five to ten years after, after the things settle a little bit. I, I don't know what you're hearing, but that's kind of what I'm feeling right now.
0: Well I had a conversation yesterday um with somebody who um is is making what I will describe as a as an unwelcome job transition. Um the the company that he worked for, you know, tried to survive, but the environment in which it uh it existed, I mean the actual I mean, the environment just dried up. So I mean, you can only survive for so long in a parched space. Um and so they've they've closed, they've shuttered the business, and so he's too bad you know Well, but he's um, I think he's very, very hopeful. Like, I think he recognizes that the world is not going to be like it was um, a year ago. Um, And so he's you know, he's ready for the next thing. I will tell you that um, there's a lot of humility that comes with that. And I hear it in his voice. Um, you know, I mean, I I hear him struggling with identity and feeling like you know I was my job and now I don't have my job and I'm a stay at home dad and that's weird and but but blessed huge blessing right so all kinds of um, ways to as Christians to talk with one another and open up conversations about these transitions um, tell us what are some things that you know from the Bureau of Labor Statistics because some of the math here matters
2: yeah it does uh, the latest stats we have are for September okay so I realize this is you know, beginning of December, but that's what we have. Uh, 6.4 million open jobs in September, 4.7 million separations. In other words, people left, uh, 4.7 million people left their jobs. Of Of those 4.7 million, 3 million were actually quits. People voluntarily left. Only 1.3 million were uh, terminations initiated by the employer. So there are more open jobs right now in the United States than there are those who are seeking jobs. Now, that's a qualified statement, right? Uh, Because the labor force participation rate is continuing to decline. And in fact, it's been declining uh, for years now. It, It isn't just declining because of COVID, although COVID has has impacted it. I'm not saying COVID hasn't impacted it, but it has been declining. So for example, in October of 2000, for those who were able to work and could have worked, 66.8% of the workforce was actually employed. Uh, In 2010, it was 64.4%. In in October of 2020 of this year, it was 61.7%, although economists expect that to rebound back to around 63%. So we've been having this long decline in the labor force participation rate. But for those who are looking for jobs, if they're willing to make career transitions and willing to get retrained, there are open jobs available.
0: Well, and there's a huge opportunity if you're willing to go into, I think, what are historically called you know the trades. And the trades now include a number of things that aren't traditional trades. Um, but talk a little bit about that, because, you know, I mean, obviously the greatest threat is to people who only have a high school degree. But if we started thinking differently about um, preparing people for vocations and trades that don't require a four-year college degree, you know, we might be on to something.
2: Yeah, the, you know, we have about – so here's an example. We have about 750,000 carpenters in the United States. From what I could see, uh, we need at least a million of them. Uh, and for electricians, what they tell us is that about 7,000 join that profession every month, but another 10,000 leave it each, I'm sorry, not month, but year. And, and another 10,000 leave it each year. Uh, we need uh, another quarter million truck drivers around the United States. Uh, we we, there's a huge shortage of nurses now there you're talking about a college degree but uh, for plumbers carpenters electricians delivery drivers customer service people truck drivers uh, certain types of of home health uh, assistance that do not require uh, college degrees there's a shortage in all of those areas and uh, some of them only pay in the mid-20s on an annual basis but plumbers you know you can start at uh, 50,000 a year carpenters are going to make 50 to 65,000 a year electricians upwards to 75 really good ones 100,000 a year
0: so and truck drivers uh, that's i mean that's a great job and you could listen to the radio
2: oh i'm just you know saying. What? i mean i'm just saying you know Get your get your Spotify going, or what? What's the what's the one that has all the music? Is that Spotify or Pandora or whoever?
0: Pandora, but but we want people to listen to the Faith Radio app. That's yes, I'm about.
2: sorry. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes, it's should. just
0: be shameless. Okay, we got to take a break when we come back. <laughs> uh, Bill English and I are going to continue our conversation. We're going to pivot a little bit and talk about um, the economic team that we see coming together. As Joe Biden puts his administration together, we're going to talk about what we think we know um, in, uh, you know, what we think we can forecast based on what we know about the people that he is tapping for service in the economic arenas. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Bill English from Bibleandbusiness.com. So, Bill... uh, President-elect Biden has begun naming um, members of his team. Some of those folks, you know, are economic advisors and um, people who will have jobs related to the econ- directly related to the economy. Um, based on the people that he is tapping for service, um, what what do you think we can anticipate?
2: Well, I, I think he's come out and said uh, directly that the labor unions are going to have a lot more influence in his. Administration, And I think they're going to try to use the labor unions both to increase their membership and to increase the compensation for workers. So it, it just seems to me that, um, that they are going to build this economy for the workers, and the way they're going to do that is through the labor unions. That's, that's my suspicion, uh, and I, I think we'll see that. Uh, they're also going to try and tackle income inequality. And uh, every administration that's ever tried to tackle that, in my view, has uh, tried to solve this by taxing, by, by creating a more progressive tax structure on the upper wage earners and then redistributing that wealth uh, through government action. And, uh, and it's, it's not only based on the fact that there's this uh, widening gap in income inequality, it's also based on, on the notion that things should be relatively fair in our society that people who work hard that the compensation should be relatively fair and so that's what i think we're going to see come out of of the biden's economics team based on who he is uh putting around himself
0: i think that you know folks who are listening right now probably have questions about uh you know anticipating taxes and those kinds of things but those are bigger conversations than we can have um because those are going to require Congress to act. And Congress hasn't really completely settled itself out yet. We have a runoff. We have two runoffs in the state of Georgia um, that absolutely will determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Um, and we have uh, still a couple of undecided races. Well, they're not undecided, but people haven't conceded yet um, in terms of the House. So the balance in the House is probably going to be around 222 Democrats and 210 Republicans. That's just a difference of 12 seats. And so um, Democrats will not have uh, I mean, they can still run roughshod over Republicans in the House, but it's harder to do so when the when the gap is so narrow. Um, And so I just want to highlight that and remind people that taxes and the way that we are taxed is actually dependent on congressional action, not just on uh, the person in uh, in the Oval Office, and so it's hard to anticipate what's going to happen on the taxation front. But there are things that Biden can do uh, in terms of economic influence um, that he can do through executive action, and obviously the placement of individuals in um, positions of uh, of power and authority throughout the U.S. government. Um, when we talk about the economy bill, when when How should we be thinking about or who should we be thinking about or what agencies maybe is the better question here? Um, The federal government is a big player in the U.S. economy. Like, right, they have lots of contractors. They buy a lot of stuff. Um, Just to talk just a little bit about the influence of the federal government on the U.S. economy itself as a direct player.
2: You know, I remember back in 2008 when I owned a company called MindSharp. It was a software training company, and we were one of the best uh, worldwide at teaching SharePoint uh, to uh, companies and to uh, military installations and people like that. I remember when they did their first continuing resolution, instead of passing a budget every year, Congress fell into this just continuing resolution after resolution after resolution, and it completely stifled uh, consistent government spending with those contractors. And there was mm-hmm. a there was a, a domino effect among contractors because contractors have subs who have subs who have subs, and you never knew if your contract was going to uh, be renewed for another six months or another year or another two months. And uh, one of the things that the government, uh, really, frankly, Congress and the president could do that would really help our economy since they do, since they are such a large purchaser of goods and services, is to actually pass a budget every year so that there is certainty and consistency in the supply chains that the government purchases from. There are... At least 10 million people, well, the government themselves employ several million, but there's got to be another 10 to 20 million on that food chain, that supply chain, that really depend on, on the government being consistent with their spending habits. And when they do continuing resolutions for three months or three weeks, it really messes with that whole supply chain's ability to meet their payrolls, to meet their rent payments, to meet their budgets. And so uh, the government, I think, has a responsibility to pass that budget every year. That's that was the first thing that came to my mind, Carmen, when you asked that question.
0: Hmm. Um, So the number is is huge in terms of Americans who are like directly dependent on the government and then those who work for the government and then who those who um, work for contractors who have government contracts. And I mean, you're talking about millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans. And so yeah, the federal yeah. government passing a budget actually does matter. Um, so does, that would be something matter. and that would be something that we need to be watching um, in these days, because I think they're going to pass another CR uh, to get us through, I don't know, the better portion of another year. And so that's um, that's troubling. And we want to encourage our lawmakers to do better on that front. All right, Bill, we got to leave it right there. So much more we could talk about Um we're going to not be with you next week because we're going to be uh, doing our winter share. We're going to cap off the year. I can't wait to show people the little caps, the little stocking caps. All right. Well, anyway, I'm kind of excited about that. Um, but we'll talk with you again in two weeks. God willing. All right. Sounds good. Creek thanks. don't rise and all of that. All right. Thanks, man. We'll be right back. <laughs> all right, take care. All right. Next up, I've got Sean McDowell. You probably recognize uh, his name by now. He hosts a wildly popular podcast uh, called Think Biblically. He is also a a professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot. Um, He blogs regularly at seanmcdowell.org. I mean, on and on and on. We're going to talk today about his latest book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen
1: this is max locato the holy spirit is not enthusiasm compassion or bravado he might stimulate such emotions but he himself is a person he determines itineraries distributes spiritual gifts he comforts jesus promised he dwells with you and will be in you occasional guest no sir The Holy Spirit is a year-round resident in the hearts of His children. As God's story becomes our story, His power becomes our power. Well, then why do we suffer from power failures? We turn to Him to get us started and then continue in our own strength. The same hand that pushed back the rock from the tomb can shove away your doubt. The same power that stirred the heart of Christ can stir your flagging faith. The same strength that puts Satan on his heels can, and will, defeat Satan in your life. Just keep the power supply open. This is Max Locato.
0: Joining me now, Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell. I don't know. Sean, do I need to call you doctor?
3: No, people are please get, call me Sean. I know,
0: right? That seems weird. It <laughs> seems like the people to whom you are seeking to appeal, um, uh, they probably don't require us using that term.
3: In fact, I prefer not to, especially with students.
0: <laughs> right? All right. So you very adeptly make the case for the Christian faith um, in all kinds of environments, certainly directly with uh, with students. Um, but also through the Think Biblically podcast, through your blogs at seanmcdowell.org. But I'm going to use this as the credibility, uh, part of the credibility for the conversation we're going to have. You have now been married to Stephanie for 20 years. I think that earns you credibility in the conversation um, that we're going to have about chasing love, sex love, and relationships in a confused
3: culture. Well, she's my high school sweetheart. She's a math teacher. She's a great mom and wife. And uh, you know, when I work with students, they do respect that. They want commitment. I think they want relationships that last, and and are looking for some models.
0: I think that's exactly the language that um, that I would choose because we are, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're we're always discipling other people. The question is whether or not we're discipling them in the direction of the truth, or we're discipling them in in some perversion of it. Um, Talk with us about this project, Chasing Love. Um, Talk about the place in the culture out of which it grows and the need you're seeking to meet.
3: Well, this book, Chasing Love, is written for students. And the subtitle is Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. And the big motivation was just being a dad with my own three three kids and really three teenagers in our home right now, seeing the messages that are constantly coming through to this generation. I was speaking to my high school students yesterday. I teach a class part-time, and we were talking about the messages that come through commercials. And I asked this one kid, I said, hey, where, where do messages about sexuality come through to you? And he goes, well, everywhere, social media, mm-hmm. movies, music, it's nonstop. And kids probably spend about 17 to 1 or 20 to 1 hours or time in social media than they do compared to church. So this book is like, let's give kids a biblical approach to some of the contemporary and thorny issues that people are talking about today, like sex abuse, pornography, the LGBTQ issue. How do we help kids think biblically and just confidently and practically about some of those issues today?
0: So many students, Sean, it occurs to me, um, are growing up in environments where um, Jesus's sexual ethic is not being communicated or demonstrated or modeled. Um, And so there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of confusion. Um, Could you just speak for a moment to those who are saying to themselves, "I, I wouldn't even know Real love, if if it walked in my door, because I'm mm. I'm so I have so many layers of protection built up against it.
3: First off, I would say, as I understand, that was the case for my father. He came from a very abusive background. Um, his dad was the town alcoholic. His older sister took her own life, and. When he became a Christian, he didn't even know what it meant to be a good husband or to be a good father. And I've asked him recently, I was like, dad, how did you become a good dad? And he said, honestly, son, he goes, I plagiarized. He said, I just, I watched people who did it well, and I read the scriptures and I studied to learn what it meant. So I can tell you from seeing my dad from the brokenest background you can imagine, becoming a wonderful dad and becoming a great father, that the scripture view about love is good and it's beautiful. And Jesus taught a certain sexual ethic for a reason that's good for individuals and it's good for society. If you're willing to surround yourself by people who are trying to live this out and just study scripture and good resources that help you kind of strip away the faulty ideas, the culture and understand what love really is, You can definitely experience that. I've seen it happen over and over again.
0: I'm talking with Sean McDowell. And yes, I have copies of Chasing Love, Sex, Love and Relationships in a Confused Culture to give away today from our friends over at B&H Publishing. Um, So if you are interested in getting a copy of this book to equip you to equip your students or to put it directly in the hands of students, that's who it is written for, Go ahead and text the word book to 877 933 2484. We'll we'll enter you into the drawing for the copies that we have available uh, here in studio today. Again, that number, you're just going to text the word book uh, to 877 933 2484. Um, Sean, when you you spoke there about Jesus having a very particular sexual ethic, um, where do you get that? Because, you know, uh, that sounds like you're pretty certain that Jesus knows this area.
3: Well, you know what? The scriptures are pretty clear about this. There's a lot of effort today, I would argue, to twist and give a different message to Jesus. But if you start in Genesis and you work all the way through the scriptures, it's pretty clear that God designed sex to be between one man and one woman who get married and become one flesh for one lifetime. Now, of course, everybody in the Bible doesn't actually follow that. But there's in a sense there's two models there's a beautiful way to honor and serve the Lord, which is singleness, and there's marriage and marriage is and sex is meant for marriage between a man and a woman who become one flesh for one lifetime. So in particular, if you go to Matthew nineteen, Jesus is asked about divorce, and what does he do? He points back towards Genesis one and says, God made them male and female, and then he points back towards genesis two twenty four where a man leads his father and mother clings to his wife, and the two shall become one. So what we see in Genesis, Jesus points back to that as the model that God has always intended to be the his sexual ethic, and that's what we see in Jesus.
0: Yeah, and you have to know the Scriptures in order to be able to do what you just did, which is to confidently point to the model, the ideal, the pattern, um, the design— and to be able to point there with confidence and say yes there are lots of examples throughout the scriptures of the ways in which we broke ourselves against this um this ideal there are any number of ways where we see this um this beautiful design of god perverted i mean there's no question about that it it, it the scriptures bear testimony to the reality of sexual brokenness throughout and and yet we need to point to The place where Jesus pointed, which is the goodness of God's original design. Um, When we come back from a very brief break, I'm going to ask Sean to talk about what life would look like if we actually followed Jesus's commands regarding sexuality. I'm talking with Sean McDowell. We're talking about his new book, Chasing Love. Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. I've got books to give away. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. We'll be right back. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is lord of all creation? Mary. continue my conversation you know with Sean McDowell, we're talking about his new book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Um, let 's give people some some good news and a vision let's cast a vision here, um, Sean. What would life be like if we actually followed jesus's commands regarding sexuality?
3: I love the sexual I love this question about the sexual ethic of Jesus because I was working with my students yesterday and I asked them that question i said let 's write on the board all the ways the world would be affected if people lived out the sexual ethic of Jesus and they started to realize. There'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no deadbeat dads. There would be no crude sexual humor. There'd be no divorce. There'd be no abortion. I mean, the list goes on and on. There'd be no pornography. There'd be no prostitution. You look at the brokenness in the world, in particular in relationships and sexuality, and none of it would be there if people just lived out the sexual ethic of Jesus. And the reason that I put that in the book and talk to students is they tend to think that the sexual ethic of Jesus is irrelevant and it's outdated and has no application to them. And I want them to see that actually the sexual ethic of Jesus long before the modern Me Too movement is actually what's best for people. It helps individuals and societies flourish.
0: And we talk about... um human flourishing. I think that is, you know, that's a great conversation for Christians to learn to have. Um, it gets us away from language that um, demeans or, um, or suggests that, you know, other people aren't doing things the right way or a righteous way. And instead, it sets the focus again on what God intends and god's god 's good design and the goodness of it, um, talk about that just in terms of an approach to apologetics in general. If I am going to approach the culture of the day and people in the culture today, do you think it 's more effective for me to do so in a way that just beats them down all the time or in a way that lifts up um, the good, the positive, the beautiful, and the true? Well,
3: I think the way you frame this is exactly right there's so many people who think a Christian sexual ethic is. Not only outdated, but it's, it's harmful to them, and it's, it's false and it's ugly, so to speak. And What I want to show is, wait a minute, you know, actually God does exist, and his teachings and plan are for our good. So the flourishing language—you're uh, right, I love the way he said it, Carmen—is it points towards God's good design, what we're for, but not just framing it in terms of what we're against. And it asks the question, what does it mean to be human? What is marriage for? How should we experience relationships? And I would argue that actually we're only free when we live out a Christian sexual ethic as opposed to the sexual ethic of the world. So flourishing language invites people to go a little bit more deep than typically today. And when when it comes to this issue, so many people are just thinking in terms of what feels right. I do whatever I want to do. And this raises a bigger question. What's my relationship to my neighbor? What's my responsibility to my neighbor? And how are we going to flourish best as human beings?
0: Talking with Sean McDowell, we're talking about, well, we're talking across a range of topics, but uh, Chasing Love, which is his new book, is at the center of our conversation, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. It is really written for students. Um, It makes the very positive apologetic for Jesus's sexual ethic. Um, It teaches us how to think in a godly way um, about sex and love and relationships in a world that is seemingly very committed to. Uh, to confusing us and turning uh, each one of those things on uh, on its very head. If this is a book that would bless you and your student, uh, go ahead and text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. We'll enter you into the drawing for the copies we have available uh, here in studio. Sean, when you think about uh, the world that your, uh, your kids um, are moving into, walking into, growing up into, uh, becoming influencers in, what um, What hope – Talk. About, I want you to talk about hope, and then I also want you to talk about fear.
3: Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. It, Sometimes it, it's easy to get discouraged when we look at the culture and the direction it seems to be going. But the hope that I give students is I say, look, you're not alone. I get to speak to tens of thousands of young people a year. And I see the young people saying, you know what, we want to follow what the Bible teaches. We want to follow the sexual ethic of Jesus, and we're resisting the culture. Now, they're not given the same platform as other ethics are, such as on places like Netflix, etc. So they're not as visible. But I tell students, I say, look, not only is it possible to live out the sexual ethic of Jesus today, but there's a lot of young people that are doing so. Uh, When it comes to fear, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Fear is self-based. When we're fear-focused, we're thinking on what happens to me and what about ourselves we're looking in. But the Bible, again, in 1 John 4, 18, says perfect love casts out fear. That's when we start looking outward at others. Then that fear starts to remove. So for me, when I speak, it's natural to get nervous looking at an audience. And I think, okay, instead of thinking about myself— how do I love my audience? And that fear sends to sub- subside. So that's why I called the book Chasing Love. If we're in relationships and we're focused on loving others, then we don't have to live in fear.
0: Yeah, I love, I appreciate the title um, and I get it. And the pursuit of of God and godliness um, and then the pursuit of neighbor um, who is, you know, everybody outside of myself, right? It, um, and pursuing them with that love that I have encountered in God and received by grace through him. Like that's, that pursuant love is really what you're talking about. And I, um, I just genuinely appreciate how you framed the conversation, how clear your communication is, uh, not just here in the written word, but in your podcast as well. I want to encourage people to, um, to visit Sean, online at Sean McDowell dot I had to scroll back up in my notes. Just tell us Sean McDowell dot
3: org. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Sean McDowell <laughs> dot org. Think biblically is the podcast. Um, Sean, what's the one question I should have asked you today, but didn't think to ask?
3: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I would have, to. I, you know, I guess I would say what are some of the underlying lies that this generation tends to think that frames how they approach questions of sexuality underneath the surface that we're not even aware of. And that's obviously a pretty tough question, but I I have an entire chapter on freedom. And I think that young people today, if you ask them what freedom is, they'll say it's doing whatever you want without restraint. They understand freedom from restraint, but they don't understand freedom for. Back to your point about flourishing, what are we made for? We're made for relationships, and we're only free when we're in committed relationships and we live as God designs us to live. So I want to reframe the entire conversation for young people and help them realize they bought a faulty view of freedom, and real freedom is found in living according to how God designed us to live.
0: I love it. See, I'm so glad I asked that question. It's really fantastic. Sean, it's always a pleasure. Um, love love what you're doing. Love how you're doing it. Um, keep doing it. Uh, let us encourage you along the way. Uh, if you are interested in entering the drawing for the copies of Chasing Love that I have here in studio, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Sean, blessings on you this holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, who are you listening to? What are the voices you're paying attention to today? Uh, I'm just reminded that our lives are full of input, like constantly, literally input streaming into, um, into our lives. And so let me just encourage you today to curate your feed, curate that media feed, um, intentionally choose to read some things that you know are edifying start with the very word of god choose to listen to music and to spoken word that is edifying that builds you up Um, once you just hear other people um, tearing things down uh, then that might be somebody that you want to only take in very small measure Uh, and so just be a curator of your own feed today take some personal responsibility for what you're reading, what you're listening to, certainly what you're watching. All of those are portals not only into your mind, but into your soul. And so we want to be people who are intentionally cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. And there's only one place we can go if we want to cultivate the mind of Christ, and that is to the very Word of God, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Jesus is the Word, became flesh, to dwell among us, and he is full of grace and truth, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son of the Father. Let's spend some time getting to know him deeply, intimately, personally, and let's do so by actually investing ourselves in the very Word of God. We are reading through the Gospel of Luke during this Advent season. If you'd like to join us in that particular um, effort, go to MyFaithRadio.com. Let us know you're reading with us. But today is day two which means we're in chapter 2. It's nice how that lines up that way. Get to know Jesus a little better today. Uh, See how the angels responded. See how Simeon and Anna responded when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple. Um, Consider what it means to grow up in every way into Christ and what the scriptures say about how he grew up in Nazareth. All of that is in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. I invite you to join me in reading it today. Have a great day, and God bless.